0: We do want to turn to God's Word this morning. And as we come this morning, Christmas week is upon us. And while I know there's some of you out there who had all your gifts bought in September and you're pulling out the cookies from the freezer that you baked in October, most of us are in the middle of a fairly busy week where we're wrapping and maybe still buying the gifts. We're trying to get Christmas cards out so they don't become New Year's cards. You're stocking up on the coffee for the grandkids' visit next week getting the schedule arranged for the weekend. And in the midst of all of these preparations for the event of Christmas, it can be a challenge for us to prepare our hearts well for Christmas. And so after my brief COVID-enforced break last week, I'm going to keep Gideon on hold for a little bit longer. And I want to look this morning at Luke chapter 1 and the birth of John the Baptist. Because in all four Gospels, the story of Jesus starts with john the baptist he was the messenger that god sent for the specific purpose of preparing his people's hearts for the arrival of jesus and so i want to read luke chapter 1 this morning we'll read verses 5 to 23 and then skip uh, later toward the end of the chapter with verse 57 but let's read together god's word from luke chapter 1 in the days of herod king of judea How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, "I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time." And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended he went to his home. If you'd flip a page over, we want to pick up the narrative then in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. I want to go ahead and keep reading toward the end of the chapter with Zechariah's song here. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this word that your spirit has inspired and recorded for us. Would you prepare our hearts for Jesus this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in the lead-up to Christmas, most families have specific traditions. Maybe it's where they get their Christmas tree, or when they get their Christmas tree, or how they set it up. Maybe it's how they celebrate Advent leading up to Christmas. Maybe it's what food they eat every year on Christmas morning. And when you do the same thing over and over, we can begin to associate Christmas itself with our traditions of course christmas would still happen if we didn't do these traditions as vicky's parents tried to assure her in the book the 24 days before christmas when vicky realizes with shock and horror that her mother might be in the hospital having her baby for christmas well, she protests to her parents it won't be christmas who can who, who's going to hang the stockings and sing us to sleep with christmas carols who's going to make the christmas day turkey ...if mother's in the hospital. And her father assures her that he is capable of hanging stockings... ...and he is capable of singing Christmas carols... ...but he acknowledges they will probably eat cereal for Christmas... ...if their mother's in the hospital. Well, the point is our traditions become ingrained in us... ...as part of how we celebrate and how we prepare for Jesus' birth. But preparing for Christmas is not something new. In fact, if we jump back 2,000 plus a few years... To the days of Herod, king of Judea, we find ourselves stepping into history at a moment that gives us a glimpse in the preparations for the very first Christmas. Because that's the point of Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 shows us how God and how his people were preparing for the birth of Jesus, it shows us how God and his people were preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. I want to start in verses 5 through 13 where first we see the routine of God's people who were waiting for the Messiah. And in these verses, we meet a country priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we step into their lives, let's just remember where things stand for Israel. The temple is standing in Jerusalem. It's even gotten a pretty nice makeover under the hands of Herod. But Herod is no Davidic king. He's a puppet ruler under the hands of Rome, who holds sway. It's been 500 years now since Israel first returned from exile. But in many ways, every Israelite is still living under the shadow of exile. It's the promises of God that told of days that would come when Israel would be redeemed and restored. The promises of a Messiah who would come to fulfill God's covenant and promises and rescue God's people. These promises were still unfulfilled. And they were very present on the minds of Israel. And we see this so much so that in chapter 2 we will meet Simeon who is waiting day by day for the consolation of Israel. And we'll meet Anna who speaks to all in Jerusalem who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These things were very much on Israel's minds. But if they were on Israel's minds, how were they preparing for this Messiah? I think Zechariah and Elizabeth give us a small window into the answer. You see first that these two are described in verse 6 as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments of the Lord. Now, of course, these phrases are not meant to imply sinless perfection. These phrases imply a couple who have fixed their eyes on the Word of God and have determined to live their lives according to His commands. They have availed themselves of the sacrifices that God provides to cover sin, and have trusted his provision for a sinful people. Perhaps we could say that Zechariah and Elizabeth here are described in lives lived according to Deuteronomy 10.12, where God said to his people, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the lord which i'm commanding you today for your good this is what's summarized when we're told that Zechariah and elizabeth were righteous before god walking blamelessly according to his commandments now we also find out in verse five that Zechariah was a priest and as these verses play out we see Zechariah faithfully serving god as a priest right where he's called History tells us that at this time, there were likely about 18,000 priests in Israel. And these 18,000 priests were divided into 24 divisions. And each division served in the temple for two weeks out of the year, not counting the the major festivals uh, that Israel celebrated. And we learn here that Zechariah was on duty with his divisions. And so he would have been in Jerusalem with approximately 750 others serving in various duties around the temple. And while they were on duty each day, twice a day, one priest would be chosen by lot to enter the temple sanctuary and to burn incense before the Lord. Because of the number of priests and because of the high honor it was to offer the incense, we're told from history that each priest was only chosen once in his life to have the honor of burning the incense in the temple. And we're told in verse 9, that as an older man, this privilege comes for Zechariah. And so Zechariah faithfully puts on the priestly robes. He enters the sanctuary. I can picture him walking in, passing the table of showbread on his left and the golden lampstand on his right as he comes to the golden altar of incense that stands right in front of Of the magnificent curtain guarding the Holy of Holies. And there, standing in the presence of God, Zechariah burns incense and prays to God on behalf of Israel. But I want you to notice that Zechariah is not the only one praying here. Verse 10 tells us that at the hour of burning the incense, a large multitude had gathered at the temple to pray. And I think it's important for us to trace here an important connection because prayer and the burning of the incense belong together in Scripture. You know, when God laid out His instructions for the tabernacle and then for the temple, the furniture that God commanded His people to make had a specific purpose. And each one functioned to to picture different aspects of His relationship with His people. And the altar of incense is closely associated in Scripture with the prayers of God's people. You might remember Psalm 141 where David calls on the Lord and asks the Lord to hear his voice. And then in verse 2 he says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Here in Luke 1 it becomes clear that the offering of the incense was an occasion each day for the people throughout Jerusalem to gather at the temple and pray together. And then we find out in the book of Revelation, which so often gives us the picture behind the picture, that twice in chapter 5 and chapter 8, we're told that the burning of incense represents the prayers of the saints which rise before God. And so we find ourselves here at the altar of incense, at the hour of incense, with the people of Jerusalem gathered outside to pray and we find that this whole event of an angel showing up to Zachariah happens at an hour of prayer when God's people are praying on behalf of Israel. Well, What would they have been praying for? They would have been praying that God would remember Israel, that God would remember his covenant and fulfill his promises. They would have been praying for Israel's good. They would have been praying that God would save Israel. Maybe they would have even been remembering Solomon's prayer from 1 Kings 9 when when Solomon asked that God would hear from heaven when his people prayed at his temple. And it's at this moment that Gabriel shows up. And I hope you notice verse 13. Do you notice the first words that Gabriel speaks when he shows up? Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why? Because your prayer has been heard. Well, what prayer has been heard? I think we most often assume that it's Zechariah's prayer for a son. And certainly he must have prayed for a son at some point, and that prayer is answered here. But Zechariah is an old man. And this passage makes it very clear that he's not expecting a baby here. And in addition, Zechariah is here on duty in the temple as a priest of Israel, chosen on that day to pray on behalf of Israel at the altar of incense. And so it seems to me that Gabriel certainly must be referring to Zechariah's prayer for Israel. Yes, you're going to have a baby, Zechariah. That's an answer to your prayer in itself. But that's not the real deal. The real deal is the son that's coming to you, Zechariah, is going to kick off the day of the Lord and the salvation of many in Israel. And so God answers the prayers of his people here and announces that answer right at this hour of prayer. So if we ask ourselves, what is the routine of those who are waiting for and preparing for the coming of the Messiah? Well, they paid careful attention to their lives, walking as righteous before God, according to his commandments. They served the Lord faithfully, right where God had placed them. And they prayed continually that God would fulfill his promises for their salvation. I think if we would pause to consider our own lives for just a minute, just like Israel, God has promised that Jesus is coming again. And just like Israel, we find ourselves several thousand years down the line from when this promise was first made. And once again, God will fulfill that promise just as surely as He sent His Son the first time. The question for us is, what does our waiting look like? What do our lives look like as we wait and prepare for his coming? And I'd suggest that Zechariah and Elizabeth and the multitudes at the temple give us a pretty good place to start. Living righteously before God according to his word, serving faithfully right where God has placed us, and praying daily that he would redeem his people and return just as he'd promised. In fact, I think if we look at 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 11 through 12, Where Peter is talking about the destruction of this world and Christ's return at the end of the ages, this is just what he tells us to do. He says we ought to be a people of holiness and godliness who wait for and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. That comment that we as God's people are to hasten the day of God is a fascinating comment because it suggests just what we saw from Zechariah and Israel that while God is perfectly sovereign and in perfect control and has named the day and hour of His return, God has also chosen to use the godliness, the faithful service, and the prayers of His people to bring about and to hasten that day of return. Those prayers that His people pray that His kingdom would come, that His will be done as they live in righteousness and serve the Lord, hasten His purposes. So brothers and sisters, that should be our routine as we prepare for the coming of Jesus. Live in godliness according to His commandments. Serve where He calls us. And pray continually that He would save His people. But let's move on then and look at verses 13 to 17 where next we see that the people are not the only ones preparing for Jesus. God is also at work preparing His people for the Messiah. You know, as God prepares his people for the first Christmas, he doesn't do so by putting up a Christmas tree or hanging stockings or sending out a family newsletter. God prepares for the first Christmas by sending a baby to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, we've already been told here that Zechariah and Elizabeth are both old and barren. And that is two strikes against having a baby. And so we can be pretty sure As a clear sign that God is going to be at work here when he announces a birth of a baby. But God often signaled that he was at work by announcing a baby to a barren couple. You might think, of course, of Abraham and Sarah, who I think we're supposed to think of when we read this story. How they were old and barren, and yet God announces the miraculous birth of their son Isaac As a note, as a clear sign confirming his promise to Abraham that his seed would be as many as the stars in the sky and that through his seed, blessing would come to all nations. You might think of the wife of Manoah that we'll read about in Judges in just a few months. She was barren, but the Lord promised her a son who grew up to save Israel from their oppression by the Philistines. You might think of of Hannah who was barren and prayed before the Lord and and the Lord sent her Samuel who would judge Israel and anoint David as the king after God's own heart. And here too, especially after attending the circumcision party, seeing Zechariah's voice restored after naming him John, you note the question that is on everybody's lips in verse 66. What then will this child be? See, God, through this birth, is preparing his people for the coming of the Messiah. It's a clear signal that something is up. But it's not just John's birth. John's life also prepares people for Jesus. After all, when the Pharisees ask John the Baptist later in life, who are you? He answers them by quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice crying in the wilderness to do what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, I was reading this week that shortly after the American colonies ratified the Constitution and elected George Washington as president, George Washington took a a trip through the New England colonies. And as he went through the towns and the villages, there there were runners, members of the local militia that would go ahead and say, General Washington's two miles out. General Washington's a mile out. And of course, what what were they doing? They were preparing the town and the whole town would come out and line the way so they could cheer and see General Washington. No one wanted to miss him. Well, John the Baptist is kind of like these members of the local militia. He was sent ahead to announce that the Messiah was right behind him and to prepare the people for Jesus' arrival. And that's what Gabriel tells Zechariah here. To understand Gabriel's words, you have to remember The words from Malachi 400 years earlier. The prophet Malachi had promised that the Lord would send a messenger who would go before him. And then he said that that messenger would be Elijah, who would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. So when Gabriel tells Zechariah, You're going to have a baby, Zechariah, and your baby is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To go before the Lord and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Gabriel's saying, this is it, Zechariah. Your son is going to be that messenger. God right now is beginning to fulfill his promises of old. And John's life tells everyone in Israel, the day of the Lord is here. The Messiah is right around the corner. Of course, John doesn't just fulfill the promises. He also has a ministry which is filled with the Holy Spirit and will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And that's exactly what he does. He confronts sin. He baptizes people for the forgiveness of their sins as a sign of their repentance. And so what John's ministry does, what John's fulfilling of the prophecies of old do, what the signal of this miraculous birth does, it's all God preparing the hearts of his people and saying, this is it, I'm coming, the Messiah is right around the corner. But you know, poor Zechariah, 400 years of silence and God sends an angel to him as the first announcement that something's about to happen. In fact, the angel announces good news. It's the first use of the word good news or gospel in the, the birth of. Account of Jesus. So here God sends an angel to Zechariah to be the first one ever to hear the best news ever. The redemption of Israel is about to arrive, and in God's kindness, he's going to kick it all off by giving you a longed for baby. And Zechariah just can't believe it. He responds in doubt and skepticism. You know, this week, as I was thinking of this scene in Zechariah's doubt, I was imagining Linus with his blanket looking at Zechariah and saying, Zechariah, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful announcement like the first Christmas and turn it into a problem. Of all the Zechariahs in the world, you're the Zechariahist. Maybe we'd want to cut Zechariah some slack. But we should remember what this passage just told us. This is exactly what Zechariah had just been praying for. And the, the angel arrives to announce that what he's prayed for is going to happen, and Zechariah struggles to believe it, which forces us to ask. Zechariah had the right routine to prepare for the Messiah. But had his routine become something of a routine? Did he pray expecting God to answer? Or had he begun to limit God and how he expected him to act? We don't know what all was going on in Zechariah's heart. But Gabriel tells Zechariah that since he did not believe his words, Zechariah will be mute until John's birth. And you imagine the scene here, right? Zechariah has been delayed in the temple. Everyone's wondering what's going on. And Zechariah rushes out of the temple. And all he can do is sign with his hands. And how do you use charades to communicate what just happened and what Gabriel has just told him? But Zechariah doesn't need to wait long as as Elizabeth conceives a son who's born nine months later, just as God promised. And if you flip to that later portion of the narrative and and the scene where Zechariah is naming his child, do you notice how effective God's preparation was of Zechariah's heart? Because by verse 63, Zechariah has clearly demonstrating his faith in the angel's announcement. He brushes aside the concerns of his extended family and friends and declares according to the angel's word that this son's name would be John. He now believes what the angel has said and immediately his mouth is opened. And notice what his first words are. I I had to pause for a minute and think, if I hadn't been able to talk for nine months, what would be the first thing I would say? I mean, I like to talk. I talk a lot. What would be the first thing I'd want to say after nine months? Maybe tell my wife I loved her, or maybe maybe just shout as loud as I could just to hear my voice again. Maybe if I was Zechariah, comment on how beautiful this baby is. But Zechariah nails it. After nine months of silence, his first response is to bless God and to bless him with a song of Praise. I think think verses 67 to 79 very likely give us that song of praise that he broke into to bless God. And here's what strikes me most about this song that Zechariah sings to bless God. He has just received a baby, miraculous baby, one he'd longed for all his life. But his song of praise is not about that baby. His song of praise is not about the wonder of being a father as he'd always hoped and dreamed. In fact, this song of praise isn't about John at all. The song is about Jesus. Because Zechariah had gotten the angel's message and he had believed the angel's message. John was the Lord's preparation for the Messiah. The fact that John was coming meant that Jesus was coming. And while Zechariah has just received the gift he's always dreamed of, a baby, that was still nothing compared to the Messiah who was the real joy and the real hope of God's people. He's the one to rejoice over, and he's the one Zechariah sings of. And that is the perfect example of a heart who's prepared for the coming of Jesus. Zechariah gives us the perfect summary of who Jesus is here. He praises God for visiting and redeeming his people. He praises God for raising up a horn of salvation from the house of David. He praises God for fulfilling his promises of old, And for remembering his holy covenant that he made with Abraham. He praises God that his son is going to prepare the way for Jesus by making known Israel's salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And then Zechariah looks back himself to the promises of the Old Testament. Malachi 4.2 and perhaps Isaiah 9 when he declares, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, to guide our way from the shadow of death into the way of peace. Aren't these words the perfect words to describe Jesus and who he was and what he came to do? The sunrise from on high, visiting people in darkness to give them light and life and peace. Here is a heart fully prepared to meet a savior. Here is an example of how to respond to Jesus when he arrives. And so, as we come to an end this morning, I think Zechariah's song and this story forces us to ask how our hearts are responding to Jesus as we prepare for Christmas this week. Of course, we have the advantage over Zechariah and his fellow Israelites, Jesus has come. We've seen Jesus' life. We've seen Him go to the cross to secure the forgiveness of sins that this song sings of. We've seen Jesus rise as the sunrise from on high and bring us out of darkness of sin and misery and bring us into the peace of reconciliation with God and bring us into the light of eternal life with Him. We've seen all that if we have repented of our sins and responded with faith to Jesus as our Savior. The question for us is, Have you responded to Jesus in faith? Have we responded to the Savior with this praise and this worship that he deserves? Because maybe the danger is that just as Israel had been praying for the Lord's salvation for centuries so that the prayer may have become a routine for Zechariah, and the Lord's answer to his prayer caught him under prayer unprepared, so for us, the church has been praising Jesus for centuries. In fact, we have actually, maybe without realizing it, echoed Zechariah's words hundreds of times when we sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. But has that just become a traditional carol for any of us? Something we sing every 12th month? Or are we singing it again and again again from our hearts as the praise of a redeemed sinner to a savior who mild he laid his glory by and was born that I no more might die. If that's who Jesus is, if that Jesus has come, may we receive him with faith and joy and worship that are demonstrated here in Zechariah's song. For it's that faith and that joy and that worship of the Son of God who has visited us from on high that demonstrates a heart that is fully prepared for Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, our God, you have sent us your own Son. You announced that that day of the Lord was beginning first to Zechariah, but then you've completed your word by sending Jesus. We've seen his life, we've seen his death, we've seen his resurrection, we've seen his ascension. And now we wait, Father, for his coming again, that we might be with him, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be completed, that your people would be redeemed. Father, I pray this morning that our hearts would be waiting for his coming with that same pattern demonstrated here that we would live righteously before you, obeying your commandments, that we would serve you faithfully right where you have us, and that we would pray continually that you would fulfill your promises and save your people. And I pray that as we come to Christmas morning this week, that our hearts would be prepared, that we would receive Jesus in faith and in joy, and that we would worship him with all the strength of our hearts. Glory be to God, our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.